Were you aware that Indiana is the second most depressed state in the nation? I mean, we fall right behind Rhode Island as one of the most states that has the greatest amount of reported cases of actual clinical depression. Did you know that personal care workers such as nursing home workers and child care providers are some of the most depressed people in the United States? With 11% of those in that field claiming actual clinical depression. Did you know that if you eat fast food more than three times a week, you're more depressed than the average American and trying to fight off depression? That means if you are visiting from Rhode Island and you happen to be working in a nursing home and you crave McDonald's, you need to come see me right after this sermon. We've got, we've got trained professionals to help you right after this. But you know, the truth is that one out of 10 Americans claim depression, clinical depression, medication, actual diagnosis. But I would say that 10 out of 10 of us struggle with downs, ups and downs, and melancholy, probably just throughout the day, if not once or twice, twice a week. I think that having down moments in life is a part of the fallen world in which we live in. You remember David committed that sin with Bathsheba, the sin of adultery. And because of that sin, he went through some excruciating guilt because of his disobedience. He was depressed and he was angry with himself. And it wasn't until he finally came clean with God and confessed his sins and said, God, I don't want anything more to do with that. I don't want to be given into that temptation anymore. Did he finally rise up and walk away with a clear conscience and the cloud of depression lifted above him? Remember Jeremiah the prophet? Jeremiah the prophet had a message on behalf of God and he wanted the nation of Israel to turn back and to love the Lord their God. But they didn't listen to his message, and so he became bitterly depressed by those folks not listening and responding to the message of the Lord. And Jeremiah had come to be known as the weeping prophet. That's how depressed his life was. How about Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel? She couldn't have children, and then finally Samuel is born. But before Samuel was ever born and she was barren, she wept bitterly, the Bible said, and she didn't even eat, and she couldn't even sleep. That's how bad the depression was within her life. And I think we all experience moments of melancholy. But what do you do when those moments turn to months and those months turn to years and the downcast days don't disappear? What do you do then? Well, the Bible talks about how you fight off the bouts of depression. And it talks to us and tells us how to bring the spark of joy back into our heart so that it can be internal, but yet it can shine out of us externally. You know, already in our study of the book of Philippians in chapter 1, Paul had pointed out that we can, we can choose joy. It's an option for us. Regardless of how bad our day might be, we can choose joy. In the first chapter of Philippians, the Apostle Paul points out that happiness is external but joy is what it's it's internal and he points out that happiness is based on circumstances the things that surround us but joy is based on whom based on on christ in our life and in the second chapter of philippians the apostle paul is going to reveal to us what brings that internal joy how to get that internal joy and how to hold on to that internal joy pretty important stuff let's look together in philippians chapter 2 let's start in verse 2 as it will go probably through a very familiar passage of Scripture 
to most of us who have been in the church very long. Philippians 2, verse 2. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Okay, so there's one step that the Apostle Paul points out in how to bring joy in your life. But he wants us first to recognize the things that steal our joy. And I think it's important to start there. What are the things in your life that steal your joy? It could be anything, but the Apostle Paul points out two of them. The first one he points out is living a life which desires to impress others. That's a killjoy. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, he says. You know, during the time that the Apostle Paul wrote these words in this letter to the church of Philippi, the word selfish ambition, that phrase, carried with it a mental picture. And that was a phrase, selfish ambition, which was used in in common with politicians of the day. Politicians who vied for power with one another and tried to climb up the political success so that they would be envied and so they could carry a weight of power with them. But their real reasoning for climbing the ladder of success politically was that others would envy them. You see, it was those in political power that were the richest and and had everything that they wanted or needed. It was their hopes back then that they would have people look at them enviously, jealously, and say things like, wow, I sure wish I had their life. I sure wish I had their kind of power. Man, he's got the best-looking wife money could buy. He's got the most amazing vehicle. He's got a house and wealth and power and prestige. Now, I know for most of us, we don't have political aspirations. But there is a tinge within us and in our society that wants others to envy our lifestyle. And maybe that's for you that it is all an outward appearance. Like you have to have the latest haircut or you have to uh, make sure that you are eating right and have uh, a good looking body and it's physically fit. Or you have to go on a diet that's like the latest crave of a diet so that you can tell your friends the diet that you're on and they can say, well, I've always wanted to go on a diet. Or, or maybe, maybe it's just having the latest clothes and you're always running the mall or shopping online to make sure that you have the latest clothes or you have to have a piece of jewelry or a watch or something that is, is hard to get so that people will be envious. As this stuff comes in all sorts of different forms, the things that we do to impress other people, it's selfish ambition and it comes in so many different ways. Maybe it's presenting your family as though you're the perfect family and so you're only putting out the pictures that you want people to see. Or maybe it's the car that you're driving. You knew that your friends had always admired that car, and since you can afford it, you wouldn't got it. Or maybe you couldn't afford it, but you can, get, you can afford it for 36 payments. And so you get it. The list goes on and on and on about the things in which we do to create an envy or desire or thirst for other people to look at our life and say, whoa, I sure wish I had that. I, he's got it made in the shade. He's got the things that I want. But you know the problem with that and the reason why this is a joy killer? It's because you spend so much energy and effort and time and money on trying to impress other people who probably more or less don't really care in the grand scheme of things. And so you're trying to base all of your life and focus on making yourself better than someone else. Notice the second thing the Apostle Paul points out as a killjoy for us, and that's living for praise and the approval of other people. 
He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, and what's the other part? Or vain conceit. And that's Paul's warning. In the magazine Psychology Today, it was reported some findings from a Canadian study that was done about the effects of social media and how it is creating a narcissistic society. Narcissism is being full of yourself. It's wanting other people to have admiration for you. You want people to praise what you're doing. And the study says that medias like Facebook and Twitter have lured us to believe that we can be in love with ourselves because of what other people are saying about us. And it seeks us out to want to receive more praise from other people. As an experiment, I pulled this picture off of Facebook this week. And I took a look at some of the comments that were associated with it. Now, that's Evan Nave. Evan's our young adult pastor, and he has posted a couple of these pictures on Thursday, Throwback Thursday. And within a minute, within a minute, he tells me, within a minute, his brother's mother-in-law liked it. That's something, man, right there. That's, you got it. Now, I know today his ego is probably three times bigger than it was Thursday when he posted that. I want to read to you some of the, you can see even what he says here. I still got it. That's how he posts his picture. So I love what Vicki Morello says. She says, still got what? Good question. Evan says, I got this stuff. Don't even know what that means. But I know that Aaron recognizes her husband and says, good looking husbandy. That must be some kind of pet name that she just put out there for everybody. And there's poor Holly Smith, and she says, you look great, Mrs. Smile, and our many conversations. Aaron, defriend her now. <laughs> Leanne says, you look great better than ever, Evan. And, and then Ellen comes, you're so stout. Man, you can see, Evan, your head's getting bigger as I speak these words. <laughs> 68 likes on the page. Evan, Evan says back to Aaron, public conversation, not pillow talk. Aaron, I know you love me for my body. Some character says, it looks like that body has lost a few pounds. Get back to work. (laughs) But I know there are people that put their pictures out there, selfies or their comments or their unique vacations that other people aren't able to have. And they're just waiting for people to comment like a a worm on a hook. They want people to sink their teeth in. and, And they're looking for praise. They're looking for admiration. They're looking for likes. They're looking for comments. And it's luring us to believe that the admiration and praise of other people is where we find our joy and contentment. And Paul says, no, that's not where that's found, friends. Actually, what it leads us to believe is the lies of Satan. The lies of Satan which say, you gotta do what's best for you. See, people are praising you for what you're doing. Or no one's gonna love you until you first love yourself. Or how about this one? I can't help, my, I can't help you until I finally help myself. But here's one of the, the biggest lies of Satan. As long as I'm happy, that's all that matters. But the focus on self, friends, actually robs us of our joy. So the Apostle Paul gives us some clarification of the things that will add to joy. So Paul says, let me warn you, get rid of those joy killers in your life, and let me have you take some steps that lead to joy. And so he begins to start this development process of how we go about it, and that's in verses 5 through 11. And I'd love for you to help me out with this. If you have your Bible open, you want to read this out loud, let's read it together because commonly in the early church, this was read in a kind of chant or, or hymn kind of form. Now, we're not going to do that. We're just going to read it together. Let's read it out loud. 
in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Now, we recognize the things that still are joy, but Paul moves into the things that will help us to mature in our joy and develop joy within our heart. And he points to Jesus Christ and he says, one of the things you can do to develop joy in your life is to have the same attitude that Jesus had. And in this, I see Paul luring to, uh, kind of showing us three different attitudes that Jesus had. The first attitude Jesus had was a servant's heart. And if you want to have joy developed in your life, you begin to create for yourself a servant's heart. Friends, a servant isn't selfish. So if you want joy, you've got to stop being selfish. A man by the name of Dr. Barton Goldsmith had written an article titled 10 Little Known Facts About Depression. And in it, he lists the 10 traits that go along with those who feel depressed. The second trait was this, and he writes, depression makes you selfish. It's very hard to think of other people when you're wrapped in a prickly blanket of sadness and all you can think about is your own pain. So he says, be proactive and take the steps you need to heal. You want to know what his conclusion is? Start thinking outside of yourself rather than about yourself. Take on a servant's heart he would say, if he were a Christian man. I think oftentimes we just don't, we don't look at it this way. When the world seems to come bearing down on us, we kind of get on side of our own little huddle and we say, woe is me, the world's coming down on me, rather than looking outside of ourselves. And I think the reason sometimes why we feel so down is because we're always trying to prop ourselves up. And the Bible says if you want to feel up, you better start getting down. Humble. The attitude of a servant thinks about others' interests and then their interests. Jesus made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. And I think that the step towards joy begins with saying, God, develop within me a servant's heart. Let me start thinking of people beyond me and let me express joy to them. That develops that develops joy internally. Here's the second thing Paul points out, I think. And that is, steps toward joy, well, it's important to develop a generous heart. You know, those who are generous, they think far beyond themselves. They don't just think of their own realm and their own household. They think far beyond themselves. They have a, of a heart that says, how can I help others around me? Several years ago, a Christian church in Greene County was given tens of thousands of dollars which were to be distributed amongst the congregation. Now, each household was given roughly a, a little over $1,000, and they were instructed by, by the ministry staff to add to that with their own finances and then find someone who was in need of that money and then give it away with no strings attached. 
Just find somebody who could use $1,500 or so and just hand it out to them. Well, many in the congregation came back that next Sunday. They were so excited. They had such wonderful, incredible stories to share and how the money was used to help. And, and there were even several people that were recipients of that money that, that came and uh, sat through the service and heard the gospel message being presented just because of someone's generosity. But there were some in the congregation that came back the following Sunday and they handed their money back to the church. And their, their excuse was, I couldn't find anybody who needed about 1500 bucks. I talked to that preacher when he told me that story, and he said this, if you don't know how to be generous with someone else's money, you'll never be generous with your own. Proverbs says, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. If you have an open hand, you're going to be a rich person. Not maybe monetarily, but you're going to be joyful. But if you start clutching onto things and being closed-fisted, there's a guarantee from the book of Proverbs that you're probably just going to keep on suffering from wanting more and more and more. Friends, generosity has nothing to do with how much talent you got, how much time you got, or how much money you've got. It has nothing to do with how many possessions you might have. Generosity starts in the heart. And if you feel blessed, you're going to aspire to want to be a blessing to other people. And when joy is experienced within you, joy will be expressed outside of you. That's generosity. Joy is inside of you, and so it is expressed outside of you. Joy goes beyond yourself, and, and, and you're joyful because of what the Lord's doing in you. You're joyful because what God is accomplishing in your life. And you just want to spread that joy to other people. There's another way to mature the internal joy in your life. And the Apostle Paul points it out like this. He points to Jesus in his forgiving attitude. And so if you're eager to take a step towards joy today, it's crucial to develop a forgiving heart. Holding a grudge against someone is the quickest way to have your joy stolen you know jesus life's mission was to usher in god's grace so that people like us can know that we're forgiven by god even though we're guilty of sinning friends there is so much incredible joy and resentment that is released when forgiveness is followed through with isn't it a wonderful feeling when Spouses are arguing with each other over something petty. And then one spouse finally says, enough's enough, and says, I was wrong. I'm sorry for this argument. And it, I'm sorry we caused such an uproar over something that's so trivial. Parents, you know the joy that comes when a child who's been disobedient admits that they were wrong and that they're sorry because it doesn't happen very often around the house. And a parent, your joy is just complete. You're overwhelmed in moments like that when people are forgiven and ask for forgiveness. But when we're unable to find forgiveness in our heart, it closes off the, uh, the joy that God desires for us to have. Jesus has taught this. Forgive and you will be forgiven. He goes on to say, with the measure you use of forgiveness, the same measure of forgiveness I'm going to use in your situation. 
But friends, when you hold on to a vengeful spirit, it keeps you from experiencing the joy, but I think probably more of a serious consequence, when we refuse to forgive, it puts us in jeopardy of not being in heaven with God. When we hold on to resentment and vengeful attitudes, when we're not willing to say we're sorry, when we're just wanting to hold on to the grudge, we're missing out on a lot of the blessings that God has in store for our life, and it steals our, it steals our joy. So those are the three things that you can do to begin to develop joy within you. Now, Paul moves on and says, for you that have joy in your heart and you want it to stick and remain and glue it there, now let me share with you some things that you can do so that that joy remains in your life. He says the first thing to do is to apply joy is to commit yourself to God. Commit yourself to God. Look at Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, Not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. So if we want joy to remain, Paul says, commit yourself to God. Be obedient to Christ, even when no one is looking. Haven't you found out that when... You have guilt in your life. You don't have a whole lot of joy in your life. Did you know what guilt is? Guilt is your soul being convicted by God on a very spiritual level that either what you've done or what you are doing is contrary to God's standards. And man, guilt produces unhappiness. And Paul's saying, if you want to have joy to stay in your heart, Simply follow the standards of Jesus and don't break any of those holy commandments that God has laid into place for your life to live. He's not trying to keep you from having fun. He's trying to spare you from harming your life. You know the easiest way to keep joy in your heart? Is to follow the teachings of Jesus. See, God works in you, the Apostle Paul says. And when you walk a path of disobedience... You put a halt to the progress that God has done in your life. You just, it's just halted. The work has stopped. There's no more continuation of construction. There's no remaining of joy. But when you walk down the path of righteousness, God's going to continue to do a good work in you, and He's going to be faithful to complete it. That work continues. He's still on the job with it. Commit yourself to God. And when you do that, you choose, you choose joy. Paul says there's a second way in which you can make sure that joy remains in your heart, even during the tough moments of life, and that is to take a genuine interest in other people. Philippians 2, look at verse 19 and 20 with me. It says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Timothy's a young man. He's a protege of Paul's. And he wants to share Timothy with these people because of Timothy's spirit, his heart towards others. What's Timothy's heart towards others? Did you read it? He has a genuine concern for other people's welfare. 
a genuine concern for it. Friends, it is so important that if you want to have internal joy and show it externally to other people, that you have a genuine care for other people. In business, most sales associates and most top-level managers go through some kind of training on how to act genuine with other people. They're taught this so that, I guess, a sales associate can close a deal quickly or so that top-level management, when a complaint is heard by an employee, they can make that employee feel good about themselves, that the manager's genuinely concerned. But pretending to be sincere is not authentic sincerity, is it? I mean, a genuine, interested person has an open heart to say, you tell me about what's going on in your life. You had a vacation? That's great. You got to go with your family? That's wonderful. It's good to be with family. Rather than saying, you went on vacation? Well, let me tell you about a vacation I took back in 87. It will knock your socks off. It's about letting other people have some communication into your life. It's about being interested in what do people have to say and, and the things that they're doing in life. Jesus taught us this kind of ministry approach, that we'd have an interest in others. And here's Jesus' ministry approach. Find a need. Fill it. Find someone hurting and help them to heal. Friends, if you take on that mentality with the people that you're around all day long with, I'm going to find a need and I'm going to fill it. I'm going to find someone hurting and I'm going to help to heal it. Man, you're going to go a long way with people. It'll help to develop a genuine, genuine heart for others and interest in them just like Jesus Christ had. Romans chapter 12, verse 10 says, Love each other like brothers and sisters. I mean, love each other like brothers and sisters. Give each other more honor than you want for yourself. Have you ever thought about that for others? You're going to give them more honor than you'd want even for yourself. Paul gives us one last way to build up joy in our hearts and to have it remain there, and that is to live a life of intentional relationships. So there's genuine interest in others, but there's intentional relationships as well. This past week, a friend of mine had shown me this quote on the screen. It says, as I get older, I'm becoming more selective of who I consider a friend. I find that I would rather have four quarters than a hundred pennies. My question was, am I a penny or am I a quarter? He never answered the question. (laughs) I consider myself a quarter. Since Paul committed his life to Jesus Christ, there were some things that happened. When he said he was a believer in Christ, all of his Jewish buddies abandoned him because they didn't share the same faith anymore. And when he became a Christian, all the Christians, because of his checkered past, were wondering, can we accept this guy? Has this guy truly been converted by Christ? And many of them wouldn't get close to him. So the Apostle Paul didn't have too many friends. And so the friends that he did have, he had to have an intentional relationship with them. And he was able to establish a relationship that was meaningful with a couple of guys. Number one was a young man named Timothy, and number two was another fellow by the name of Epaphroditus, who he met while he was under house arrest. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 25. It talks about Epaphroditus. It says, But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus. Now notice, the Philippians sent to him Epaphroditus so that Paul would be helped while being under house arrest. But Paul says, he's such a good guy, I'm sending him back to you, not because he's getting on my nerves. Here's how Paul puts uh, Epaphroditus on, on, a, on a mantle. He says, he's my brother. He's a co-worker. He's a fellow soldier. He's also your messenger. 
whom you sent to take care of my needs. Now notice Paul's association with this guy. He says, we're like brothers in this. We are co-workers for Christ in this. We're like a band of brothers of soldiers here. And you sent him to me, and I appreciate it. And he came and he ministered to me. This is coming from the mouth of a guy that doesn't have too many friends, and he's saying, this guy's been a great friend to me. He's one of my, my closest friends, but you know what? I'm going to send him back to you. I want you to experience in your life the joy that this guy brings. And so Epaphroditus, he's been this great joy and inspiration to me, and, and I love it, but I want to share him with you now so that he can take care of you and minister to you in ways unique to him. And Paul, Paul's saying, Epaphroditus is the perfect man for the job. He's my best friend, my best man. And I don't have too many of them. But this guy makes me so excited and so happy, and I want to share that happiness with you. So I'm sending Epaphroditus back so that you can have the same joy that I've experienced with this guy in your life. And Paul invested into Timothy and Epaphroditus, not because they're the only friends he could get, but because he wanted to make sure that his relationships with others were intentional so that he could pour out into them the joy that was within him. You may have noticed that as we talked about the steps to joy, I never said this is step one, two, and three. I don't think there is one, but I think there is at least one step you have to take. That first step to joy is by accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior and then follow after Him. You know, I've discovered over the past couple of winters, when the days are short and the sun is covered by clouds, that I grow irritable. Although I've never been diagnosed, there's a real depression brought on by the lack of sun exposure. It's called seasonal affective disorder, SAD for short. It's caused by the lack of vitamin D that is naturally produced in our bodies when the sun shines on us. But no sunshine, no vitamin D. No vitamin D, you're a possible candidate to be SAD during the winter months. I can't help but draw that comparison from what our bodies need outwardly to keep us from being sad to what our soul needs inwardly to keep us glad. Could it be today that the reason while you're have sadness in your life is because you lack God's Son, Jesus Christ, shining in your heart? Is perhaps the reason why you haven't experienced joy maybe simply because you haven't accepted God's Son, Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ.